Introduction, Chapters 8 through 12 of The Origins of Christianity by Thomas Whitaker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introduction, The Origins of Christianity. Chapter 8, Paulinism. The earliest literary expression of Christianity, though not the earliest type of doctrine, was Paulinism. Those who began to put forward a speculative Christianity in the name of Paul were the first Christians to write, precisely because they were the innovators. The epistles which form our collection grew out of a Pauline literature consisting of short doctrinal expositions and exhortations. They do not differ essentially from the other old Christian epistles, which were never actual letters, but from the first edifying compositions ascribed to men of reputation in the past, bearing unmistakable marks of the present to which they belong. This view, which is von Manen's, set forth partly in his own words, I accept, but some readjustment is necessary in relation to the different position I have been obliged to take up with regard to the very earliest Christianity. The modification needed, however, is surprisingly little. The first question to arise is, who was this Paul, to whom doctrinal developments and then epistolary expositions of them were ascribed? According to von Manen, he was one of those who had been converted by the disciples of an actual Jesus to the belief that he was the Messiah. The new apostle, to adopt the later term, was especially active in missionary journeys, and hence was remembered with greater vividness than the rest. Some of those members of the Christian communities who, about the end of the first century or the beginning of the second, were departing from narrowly Judaic ideas, put themselves under the protection of his name, perhaps because the wide range of his activity suggested a larger tolerance of non-Jewish customs. Embellished accounts of his travels were written, on the basis partly of a diary of a fellow traveler. Of this diary we possess portions in the journey narrative of the canonical acts of the apostles. The narrative we possess has been somewhat manipulated, but the retention of the first person plural indicates a real diary. The genuine substratum that may be inferred is not inconsistent with the chronological position assigned to Paul in the legend. Thus, there was a point of contact for the Pauline literature in the actual life of one who lived in the generation preceding the destruction of Jerusalem. The modification I suggest is this. The Paul who was remembered was not, indeed, an associate of the disciples of an actual Jesus, but he belonged to a group of messianic propagandists of Judaism. Some such groups must have been vaguely remembered, and the Christians, in our sense, who arose after the destruction of Jerusalem, would naturally make use of their names, transforming them into disciples of the personal Jesus in whom they believed. The apostolic age was thus legendary, 
but not wholly mythical. No doubt there are considerable elements of pure myth, especially in the case of Peter, the rock apostle. And indeed, of the figures that remain, none has the least tangibility except Paul. Still, in the Paul of Acts, and of the epistolary literature, there is left one figure which has the degree of reality to be sought in historical romance. This is the character of his trial before Festus. Like the trial of Apollonius of Tyana before Domitian, it may not represent anything that actually took place, but was composed in relation to a real personage, and it has some circumstances of a possible trial. It is not simply a transcription from a mystery play. The Paul who really lived may have traveled as far as Greece and Italy, and may have been finally lost sight of in Rome. Beyond the fragmentary narrative of a single journey preserved in Acts, there is, however, no hope of reconstructing his story. Even this view, which, so far as Paul is concerned, does not differ substantially from von Manen's, is not absolutely necessary to explain the Pauline literature. Considering similar attributions before and after, we might be inclined to say that a purely fictitious personality would suffice. Yet the collection of circumstantial narratives in the Acts of the Apostles seems to point to some such view on the whole. These narratives are indeed full of miracles, but they seem better explained on the supposition that they are legends growing out of the propagandist activity of messianic Jews before the destruction of Jerusalem, than by dismissing them all as merely typical miracle stories about symbolical personages. For a fuller account of the doctrinal development called Paulinism, I refer to the exposition which follows. The conspicuous features of the Pauline Gospel are, of course, the insistence on faith that in Jesus the Christ has come, and on the grace that is given men to believe. This grace and this faith are the conditions of personal salvation. The Christ of Paul, the Son of God, in whom faith is required, and from whom grace comes, is the expression of a more exalted supernaturalism than that of the old messianists. The development is speculative rather than mythical or apocalyptic. The Johannine school, carrying this forward, gave satisfaction also to the concrete imagination which felt the need to combine with it the belief in the reality of a Christ according to the flesh. For Paul, a merely apparent fleshly manifestation of the Christ would have been sufficient. There are indications in the epistles of what is afterwards called docetism. The school of John, by avoiding this development, conciliated the orthodox. That is to say, those among the leaders who instinctively perceived the importance for governing mankind of keeping terms with the prepossessions of the crowd, which evidently could not let go the pathetic concrete Jesus, 
the equivalent for the Tammuz or Adonis of the old Semitic cult, the popular religious mythology, as distinguished from the philosophical mythology of the Christian Gnostics, to which by itself Paulinism tended, was thus saved. At the same time, John brought more exactitude than Paul into the philosophical side of the mythology. The Alexandrian idea of the mediating logos, or creative reason, between the supreme God, of philosophy and of Judaism, and the world of man, was applied in a peculiar sense to Jesus Christ. The man of flesh and blood, and the divine being, were to be conceived as mystically united, and the Logos was not merely a power or aspect of God, but was God. Thus, the problem afterwards brought to an orthodox solution in the Nicene formula was posited. In any admissible solution, formal monotheism had to be retained. The average Christian consciousness was too Judaic to allow of a real second God. On the other hand, Christian theology, as it was brought more in contact with the schools, necessarily worked under the dominance of the triadic idea, which then fascinated speculative minds. Another mediating power, therefore, was required to complete the divine triad. This was found in the Holy Spirit, the Pneuma, a conception which also appeared in the line of Alexandrian Judaism. There is no need to go further into the complex process through which formal logic on the one side and the spirit of practical accommodation on the other worked to produce out of the scattered data of the New Testament the dogma of three co-equal persons or hypostases in one God. It may suffice to say that the type of solution is to be found implicitly in John. Paul admitted of more varied speculative development. What, then, was to become of the forward-striving movement of the Pauline school, which preceded the Johannine school, and was not absorbed into it? The answer is given in ecclesiastical history. The Catholic Church succeeded in nominally appropriating Paul, but he never ceased to be, what he had been called in the second century, the Apostle of the Heretics. A slight sketch of the new development by which the transition was made to a de-Catholicized Christianity will be necessary before concluding this introduction. In the meantime, it may be worthwhile to bring into view one or two indications that our collection of the epistles of Paul, like the New Testament generally, is long subsequent to the year 70. Such indications, indeed, have been made clear by von Manen in the epistles he specially deals with. And if these were abandoned, there could be no serious thought of defending the rest, while the abandonment of the rest would not by itself affect them. It is, therefore, merely for the sake of preliminary illustration, 
and not with the notion that the passages cited close the question, that I choose an instance from the Epistle to the Galatians and one from the Epistle to the Thessalonians. Take the allegory of the two covenants in Galatians chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. Does not the antithesis on the face of it apply to two religions, both of them conscious of its claims as such, the new not regarding itself as a mere sect of the old? But the verse to which I would draw special attention is chapter 4, verse 25, where it is said, in reference to the present Jerusalem, for she is in bondage with her children. By contrast, the Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. What would have been the point of this while Jerusalem, with its temple and its hierarchy, stood, not only secure, but full of hope, soon to be made the visible center of the kingdom of God on earth? A passage that tells, if possible, more strongly in the same sense, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The Jews, of whom the apostle is supposed to be one, are contrary to all men, and the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. The only question about the latter expression is whether it should not be referred to some time shortly after 135, when the revolt that had finally broken out in the reign of Hadrian was suppressed. The former might have been borrowed from Tacitus. The point of view belongs to a Christianity of which the ambition to be a world religion was rising so high that it was already beginning to stir up anti-Semitism among the heathen. 9. The Catholic Church According to the view taken in von Manen's work, the Pauline epistles in our present text are slightly Catholicized. It would be possible to treat the passage just quoted from 1 Thessalonians as an interpolation in this sense. The argument, however, would not have to be on purely textual grounds, but on grounds of the higher criticism and, as von Manen has shown, when such a process is carried out thoroughly, the results are hardly more conservative than those that he has arrived at himself. In any case, the Pauline epistles did not originally express the ideas of that which afterwards became the Catholic Church. Paul, the ideal author of the series, was not, as Comte took him to be, the founder of Catholicism. Neither was he precisely, as Renan called him, the Protestant doctor. He may be best described as the father of Gnosticism. The earliest historic persons influenced by him were Basilides and Marcion. They developed the Apostle, the only one they recognized, in the direction of their own anti-Judaism. This anti-Judaism was of a speculative kind. It does not seem to have been a form of embittered propaganda. The object of the Gnostics was not to capture the multitude and the state, but to maintain for themselves the position of higher speculative thinkers among the rising Christian communities. 
they had no decisive part in the ramifying organization by which christian ecclesiastics succeeded in dominating the world indeed they were themselves among those afterwards persecuted by its chiefs the self-styled catholic church first became visible as a growing association of christian communities animated by the ambition of succeeding to the theocratic powers of the jewish hierarchy these powers as in the dreams of ancient seers were to be expanded till they should sway the world the special representatives of the dream of world dominion came now to be certain practical-minded office-bearers ready to work by all methods but on the intellectual side proceeding especially by compromise within limits as time went on they naturally became more and more hostile to those who obstinately adhering to the elder jewish community seemed a living protest against their assumptions an illustration of their characteristic mode of dealing with the protest was furnished when they had come into power by cyril of alexandria it was not that they in the least sympathized like the speculative gnostics with rebellion against the wrathful jehovah of the old testament on the contrary they adopted into their canon the aspirations of the fiercest apocalyptists every soul that will not hear the new prophet shall be destroyed acts chapter three verse twenty three the man-child the seed of the woman is to shepherd all the nations with a rod of iron revelation chapter twelve verse five his vesture is dipped in blood and his name is the word of god chapter nineteen verse thirteen in recompense for the persecutions and tribulations that they endure the faithful shall rest with the apostles when the lord jesus shall be revealed from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not god and that obey not the gospel of our lord jesus christ second thessalonians chapter one verses seven and eight the ideal of the new theocracy was authoritative dogma socially supreme pure monotheism combined with the practice of a ritual would no longer suffice the dogma had been complicated by the revival of archaic sacramental conceptions and by a new mythology in part of pagan derivation the horribilia secreta of killing the god and eating the god were to be brought within the forms of logic as if they were philosophical truths the old idea of the national church state the chosen people had passed into that of universal hierarchy in the notion now definitely formulated of heresy and schisms as crimes was involved the deadly germ whence grew the historic system compared with which the religions of dahomey and of ancient mexico were natural and amiable errors hopes of emancipation from the yoke of tyrannic custom that arose in the christian communities 
as they had arisen before in Greece, were systematically quenched. Definite and repeated sanction of slavery, thoroughgoing subjection of women, political maxims that have been rightly interpreted in the sense of passive obedience, may contrast with the spirit of much in the New Testament. But it is in them that we perceive the authentic mind of the church. And yet there could never be any doubt that, if they once came into conflict with the system of the hierarchy and its dogma, all civil and domestic ties would be dissolved. Criticism seems to have justified the audacious suggestion of Hobbes, that what was originally meant by the sin against the Holy Ghost, which could never be forgiven, was resistance to the ecclesiastical power. This was the system that conquered in the fourth century. In its absence, no doubt the imperial government would, all the same, have become nominally theocratic. The deified emperor would have presided over a syncretism of recognized religions. Philosophy, withdrawn wholly from politics, or, if it ever touched them, recurring to the republican traditions of the past for illustrations, would have retained, in pure thought, the independence it possessed. The effective government would have been a secular despotism tempered by law, without the superposition of a spiritual tyranny in action. It is an interesting problem whether this would have been more easily broken through than the double order, secular and spiritual, handed down to the West. In any event, it could not have been more impregnably fixed than the Christian theocratic state of the East, which in its older form perished by foreign conquest, but which has never, so far, been shattered from within. And in comparison with Eastern Orthodoxy, it would have been a free and humane civilization. A more soluble question than this fascinating one of hypothetical history is the causation of events as they actually occurred. With the two systems of philosophic pagan comprehension and of Christian intolerance face to face, there could be no doubt in the circumstances of the time as to the issue even in a time of widely diffused science and freedom, the terrors and the glamour of superstition are not easily dispelled. When the conflict actually came, the world had already broken into autocracy, and the knowledge that there was of nature and history, though more than sufficient for dealing with the new dogmatists in equal debate, had no hold on the multitude. The theocracy, as its apologists boasted, had sapped the organization of the empire, and even if its devotees numbered less than a tenth of the indifferent or hostile, the transcendent threats and promises of its creed, and its readiness, whenever its time came, to inflict sustained, not fitful, persecution, would assure its victory. What it needed was that, in the contention for imperial power, a successful candidate should have seen the value of its support. Nominal tolerance accorded, the victory was won. The dominant faction in the church pressed ever more relentlessly through its court prelates, 
for the persecution of its antagonists, whether mere polytheists, or Christian heretics, or philosophical Hellenists. Against popular superstitions not incorporated in its new pantheon of saints and martyrs, the religion of baptismal regeneration and of exorcism by the cross adopted the old laws against magic. Heresy, that is, choice of one's own belief, was made treason against God, as to which evidence could be elicited by torture, whether the accused was bond or free. Here there was equality. Lastly, the schools of philosophy were closed, their endowments confiscated, and those who should Hellenize proscribed. 10. The Later History of Paulinism With all their arrogant claims, and with all their weapons of fraud and violence, the great churches called Catholic and Orthodox have never for a moment succeeded in bringing within their unity even the whole of those who call themselves Christians. Heresies and schisms there have always been, and in spite of persecutions, their life has been again and again renewed. In this succession, the apostle of the heretics had an important part. After the Gnostics of the earliest Christian centuries, who were the first to attach themselves to the name of Paul, there came the Manichaeans, in whose doctrines there were Christian elements of the same derivation. Then, after the victory of the church, there survived in corners of the Eastern Empire the Paulicians, whose teaching at length, by a complex process, affected the West in the 11th and 12th centuries. The episode in which their heresy was stamped out is by general consent the most atrocious in the annals even of Christendom. There went on, nevertheless, groups hostile to the great church, but with a difference. The tendency now began to be in the direction of modern Protestantism. But, as before, so now, a basis was sought in the writings attributed to the Apostle Paul. Here takes place a curious transition, which has scarcely been enough dwelt on, though Gibbon clearly perceived it. For the anti-Judaic Paul of the Gnostics is substituted the essentially Judaizing Paul of the Protestant churches. That there are Judaizing passages in the epistles must, of course, be admitted. But it seems likely that the almost contemporary Gnostics had a truer feeling for the general drift of their ideal apostle than latecomers like the 14th century precursors of Luther and Calvin. Modern Protestants have interpreted their Paul in the light of the Old Testament canon accepted by the rabbis, and with the help of a judicial theory of the sacrifice of Christ, elaborated by Catholic doctors like Anselm, the Paulicians of the 12th century were still of the old Gnostic type, professing a dualism for which the God of the Jews was a subordinate, if not an evil being. In the 14th century, a new type of Paulinist, 
who yields to no Hebrew psalmist or prophet in devotion to Jehovah, has begun to emerge. In the 16th and 17th centuries, the type definitely appears. Less interesting from the speculative point of view, the new doctrine has proved of tougher fiber practically. With the Polysianism of the Middle Ages, it had, however, one feature in common. Against the tyranny of priests and despots, it showed, as its strength grew, something of the spirit of insurgent theocracy, to the pulling down of strongholds. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Moreover, since it denied the supernatural powers of the old hierarchy, it expelled, in practice, the forgiveness of sins. One who had faith might indeed believe that his sins were forgiven through Christ. But, after all, he was thrown back for satisfaction on his own conscience, which, as Kant says, is more exacting than a confessor. No one else could tell him that he was absolved. The commission to the apostles and their successors to remit sins or retain them was in effect cancelled. This was an immense gain for the moral progress, though the new doctrine of faith alone might in itself be no sounder than the old one of religious works, that is, devotional exercises. The insurgent side of the doctrine was just as beneficent. The divine right of kings was indeed preached even more zealously and in a more unqualified manner by Protestants than by Catholic ecclesiastics, when the papal overlordship had disappeared and there were Protestant state churches. But the genius of the new form of Christianity told against it. The destruction of political absolutism was begun by the Protestant nations. In this prelude of revolution, it is fair to allow that the reading of the Old Testament was not without effect. The Hebrew scriptures contain, indeed, the idea of legitimist theocracy, but they also contain, more effectively than anything in Paul, the ideas of theocrats in revolt, who will obey none but an invisible king, and who are even on the way to refuse submission to priests as his interpreters. Not that such ideas have the least positive value for the founding of a constitution. The development of the English polity, for example, would have been impossible without the structural basis of old Teutonic or other customary rights, reinforced by intellectual conceptions of the state, derived not from Judea, but from Greece and Rome. Still, without the element of Hebraic fervor, all might have ended in antiquarianism and literary reminiscences. The sacredness of Christian monarchy, as it still appeared to the devout and loyal imagination of the seventeenth century, had to be counteracted by the popular force of a religious emotion on the other side. We have thus, at a few strides, got far away from the origins and arrived at the time of the irrevocable disruption of Christendom on a worldwide scale. From this time forth, it has also been confronted as a whole with independent 
or free thought. If we recross the intermediate period, then, as we approach the origins, we find the position, in this respect, on the surface identical. Revealed religion has not yet come into full possession of the power, which it was to retain for over a thousand years, but at length to lose, of repressing the liberty of philosophizing. Before concluding, we must dwell for a moment on this last phase of the ancient world. 11. Philosophy Against Revealed Religion The remark was made above that the resistance of the second century to the propagandists of the new revelations secured a breathing space for independent philosophy. This respite enabled Plotinus in the third century to found the last great philosophical system of antiquity, since known as Neoplatonism, without so much as naming the Catholic Church, though in one book he opposed the doctrines of the Gnostics. The Gnostic Christians, with their high speculative pretensions, no doubt seemed better worth refutation at the hands of a philosopher than the Orthodox who would, to him, represent only the purely deceptive side of the movement. Plotinus finds, indeed, in the Gnostics, a sort of blurred reflection on Plato. And yet we should know from his tractate, if we had no other evidence, that they too were anti-Hellenic fanatics, full of the arrogance which regarded the whole visible world and all men except the Christians, as shut out from the care of divine, as distinguished from demonic or even diabolic power. The new philosophical development was not, in the long run, without benefit to Christianity itself, as a system which could give satisfaction to those who sought, in religion, higher elements than creed and ceremonial much that ordinarily passes for christianity is really stoicism or platonism and the neoplatonists becoming the authorized expositors of the ancient philosophy so long as the teaching of it was unsuppressed imbued educated christians with some of the learning of the schools besides they made contributions of their own to speculation which Christian thinkers found their advantage in borrowing. In view of all that has been said about the theurgy of the school, it is necessary to point out that Neoplatonism remained essentially a philosophy. It had no new religion to advocate, but, if allowed, would have continued the process of allegorizing and morally reforming the religions of the Greco-Roman world some members of the school refused to have anything to do with theurgy and if others were infected with the contagion of the age that is not surprising what divides them all fundamentally from the christians and indeed from the oriental world generally is their attitude to mythology with them myth is clearly distinguished from science they allegorize the adventures of a god, 
while denying explicitly that what is related of the god ever took place it appears that some following plato himself objected even to this degree of compliance with popular religion proclus in his commentary on the republic argues against those who blamed the greek myths for giving a handle to the christians who were accustomed to make points by denouncing their immorality his reply is singularly modern the abuse does not take away the use it might equally well be urged that intoxicants ought to be expelled from the state because some indulge in them to excess divine myths are to be used in moderation they are to be treated in their obvious sense as myths and not as an expression of pure reason but a philosophical meaning is to be sought under them now of course the mode of allegorizing homer common to the latter greek schools while often interesting in itself led away from the truth about the real nature of the poems which were not expositions of philosophical theology but it is well to recognize that after all there is something in the point of view the old myth-makers not being able to express themselves by abstractions but only by imagery did often convey a general truth by this means the philosophers themselves in putting forth their interpretations were accustomed to express a doubt whether this had been done self-consciously or by a sort of instinct it is still quite easy to find under stories like the fall of man or the tower of babel such mythical truth as was found under many greek myths and a philosopher cannot reasonably be blamed for exercising his ingenuity in this way dum vera re tamen ipse religione animum turbi contigere parcat the meaning educed from the bible stories as from similar stories in hesiod may have been put there originally they seem to be examples of myth passing into the reflective stage at any rate the question would furnish an interesting topic for disputation and it must be conceded that if the philosophers could have retained for popular use the old system as against the new they would have preserving for the time a less cruel superstition the christians much as some might have liked to be rid of the whole tradition that had preceded them soon found that to keep their hold on a world still inheriting the remains of intellectual culture they needed a formal philosophy to combine with their mythology this they could only derive from the greek schools neoplatonism furnished them with their later theory of the immaterial soul and it is a remarkable fact that a religion said to have been revealed has had to recur for every serious effort to find in the universe the manifestation of a rational and moral order to thinkers who never pretended to have obtained what they might offer in this direction by anything but the exercise of their own reason 
some tribute ought to be paid to the better minds in the period of established christianity for thus going back to the wisdom of the greeks so contemptuously contrasted in documents they held sacred with the foolishness that was to confound it we owe for example to william of morbecca the dominican archbishop of corinth in the latter part of the thirteenth century the preservation in a latin version of three treatises of proclus containing the exposition of his theodicy and these in the half unintelligible translation may still be read with interest while leibniz's corresponding treatise through its official acceptance of elements common to the protestant and catholic creeds of the seventeenth century is already obsolete the radical question between the neoplatonists and the christians was whether philosophy should be formally above popular religion or popular religion above philosophy a system of thought summing up for its time the tradition of the highest civilization attained could not submit to become the handmaid of a faith it regarded as barbarian and this was to be the position assigned to philosophy during the lowered civilization into which europe was now sinking in modern times philosophy has again so far emancipated itself that it can subsist as a kind of scientific specialism without doing homage to the creed still nominally accepted by the world at large but till the position is formally reversed the ancient civilization in which all who were not content simply with custom sought light from philosophy must be classed as in this respect higher than the modern of course no one would propose to revive neoplatonism as a philosophic creed it has however some typical value as the result of a long process of thought which cautious as it might have to be in relation to popular feeling needed to pay deference to no constituted authority in matters of opinion how long has this been true of modern philosophy twelve conclusion a short writing entitled derision of the gentile philosophers by a certain hermias otherwise unknown throws interesting light on the attitude of the victorious faith about the fifth or sixth century the author begins quote, paul the blessed apostle writing to the corinthians declared o beloved the wisdom of this world is folly with god speaking not at random for i think it took its origin from the apostasy of the angels through which cause the philosophers set forth opinions neither in harmony nor correspondent simplicius one of the neoplatonists who sought philosophic liberty in persia when the schools at athens were closed by justinian puts the other side of the case we must not think he says that the differences of expression among philosophers indicate such absolute opposition as they are reproached with by some who acquainted only with historical compendia 
understand nothing of what they read. Moreover, those who reproach them are themselves cloven by schisms innumerable, not about physical principles, for of these no notion visits them even in dream, but about the mode of degrading the divinity. As a matter of fact, the method of Hermias is precisely that which is here hinted at. Such and such a philosopher, says the derider, held that water was the principle of things, another the infinite, another air, another fire, and so forth. Which am I to believe? On the emergence of truth from free discussion, he has no conception. Since the philosophers do not offer him an infallible revelation, their wisdom is folly. The most interesting passage comes at the end, where he successively scoffs at the Pythagoreans and the Epicureans. Pythagoras, the inquirer is supposed to cry out, measures the world. And I, raised to enthusiasm by this idea, forget family and country and wife and children, and set out on an expedition to measure all the elements. If, mighty body and mighty soul that I am, I do not go up to heaven and measure the ether, the dominion of Zeus is gone. When Zeus has learned from me how many angles fire has, I again descend. And, eating olives and figs and herbs, I apply my measuring rod to the moist substance, and teach Poseidon what is the extent of the sea he rules. I know also the number of the stars, and of fishes and of beasts. And, by placing the world in balance, I can easily learn its weight. But, he proceeds, I am not yet at the end of my labors. Epicurus comes and tells me that I have measured one world, indeed, but that there are many and infinite worlds. I furnish myself with provisions for a few days, and set out to measure these also. At length, having measured, say, the thousandth world, I become bewildered. Quote, but why do I delay to number the very atoms, out of which so many worlds have come into being, to the end that I may leave nothing unexplored, especially of things that are so necessary and useful to the prosperity of a household and a city? By a strange irony of events, the derider of philosophy, in what he says of measurement and number and atoms, has sketched out the program which became that of modern science when the great darkness had receded. If we are to guard against the return of that darkness, we must remain faithful to the principle that was the final object of his scorn, the disinterested pursuit of truth. End of Introduction Chapters 8-12